You know, our world is a strange brew of good and evil. Good and evil are mixed up together in this world. And there are some amazing good things that we enjoy in this world. You've just had vacations. I'm sure that you've enjoyed some great, great things. I know one of the amazing goods that Jill and I enjoy, have for several years now, there's a town west of here called Geneva. I don't know if some of you have been there before. But a lot of times on Monday, which is my day away from the office, uh, we go out to Geneva. And it's a place where uh, you drive into it. It's right on the Fox River. You come into this. It's situated on a hill, valley. The river flows through. The architecture, old buildings, it's like you're driving back into a town from decades ago. And there's shops all over the place. And Jill loves to shop through those shops. I've discovered that I can navigate a shop a lot quicker than Jill does, but I'm tagging along, and, uh, and I enjoy it. It's peaceful. It's relaxing. And our favorite shop out there is called The Little Traveler. And uh, my reason, the reason it's the favorite for me is because they have, it's full of samples, and it's snack time. Every time I go in there, it's snack time, and Jill has to sort of restrain me a little bit, you know, and not, don't take advantage of this, but... Uh, but we enjoy Geneva. It's, it's one of those places, oh, Graham's Coffee Shop. I don't want to forget to mention that. They brew Two Brothers Coffee. It's excellent stuff, brewed in the area, in fact. So anyway, it's a simple pleasure, but it's a great good. But there are also, and I'm not going to use the word amazing here. I'm going to switch adjectives. There is also shocking evil in this world. And we see it in the larger world around us. Things like terrorism, murders in the city of Chicago, Dwayne Wade, the basketball player, his cousin, out walking her baby in the stroller a couple, three days ago, got caught in a crossfire, shot, killed. Uh, Happens all the time, doesn't it? We have starvation, we have poverty, we have war, we have crime, we have cruelty, brutality. Lies, betrayal, and isn't it something that there's no boundaries for this? You would think evil might stop at, when it comes up to children. There'd be a boundary line there. Say, no, don't cross. It isn't true in our world, is it? Children become some of the most brutalized victims of the evil that is in our world. So we look at it, we take, take a look closer to home, our own personal lives. Uh, and I don't want anybody, anyone to be deceived. As you sit in this room this morning, sometimes when we sit in a church filled with other people, we get this feeling that most everybody else in here has things pretty well put together because everybody's dressed up and looking good. Uh, I can guarantee you that that's not true. In my, in my 46 years of ministry, I have never yet met a person who is not struggling with evil. And I don't think I ever will. That is the brew. That's the mixture that we live in in this world. So the question is, why? Why are we human beings so capable of doing such vicious things to one another? Where does this will to hurt, where does that come from? Now, one answer that's been proposed and it's held by a good many people, is that this viciousness is, that 
is that still remaining part of our common animal past that evolution has not yet progressed enough in humanity socially to enable us to overcome. But the hope is that, that humanity will continue to evolve socially and there will, be a come, there will come a time when we've really broke free of this, of this evil that we're talking about. But I'm not sure that the evidence of history is pointing that way. Because that list of evils I read a moment ago, I don't think that's getting any shorter at all. And we live in, an, in a history of unprecedented, in a, in a century of unprecedented evil and terrorism. And this view of evil also makes it hard really to define the word evil. Because you can't really call it a moral choice. It's more of an a natural animal instinct. Uh, whenever a cat goes after a mouse, okay, that cat is aggressive. It's, aggre- it's aggressive against another creature. And what's it do? Man, it, it, it hurts that mouse. It's pain. It's cruel. It's brutality. And that's what... But the view here is that that's... It's just part of, part of nature that's still wrapped up in, in us because of our past. Alfred Lord Tennyson, way back in 1849, he had a dear friend of his who died, and he wrote what some think to be the greatest poem of that century. It's called In Memoriam. Now, Tennyson was a Christian, but he lived at the same time that Darwin was uh, beginning to propose his theories. Uh, and, and one line in this poem goes like this. You've probably heard it before. He says that nature is red, or it's bloody, in tooth and claw. And so he was, he was just simply saying there, his struggle to come to grips with the death of his friend, the evil, that had, the evil of death. He was struggling with his Christian faith. And maybe Darwin has it right. Maybe, maybe it's just nature and the brutality of nature, and all of us are just caught up in that, and that impulse flows through humanity from time to time. This was the reasoning, really it was, the reasoning of the Nazis about 70, 80 years ago, which, in which they felt justified to exterminate millions and millions of human beings because they believed that we're just, it's just nature in progress here. But Jesus gave a very different answer to the origin of evil. He teaches us that evil did not begin with just an impulse of nature. He, told, he teaches us that evil began by an individual who made a choice to do wrong. And Jesus refers to this person very bluntly in a conversation he had with the self-righteous religious leaders, the Pharisees. And this is what he said. You belong to your father, the devil. He, personal pronoun, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Now that means that at some point the devil did hold to the truth, but at some point he turned away from God. For, and then Jesus continues, for there's no truth in him as he now is. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus was saying there that Satan is a pathological liar, and he has been ever since he fell away from God. 
Jesus is telling us that evil has not always existed. Evil is a parasite. It can only exist because good already exists before it. There would be no such thing as evil if good weren't the primary thing that exists, the essential thing. And good points to God. So Jesus' definition of evil is this, that the first act of evil was a choice by one called the devil. His other name is Satan. In fact, he has several other names. So now, before all of our 21st century minds take this thought of the devil and start going nuts with that, thinking that this is, man, this is just Ghostbusters stuff. This is fantasy. This is, people gave up believing in this stuff a long time ago. I want you to hold on. I want you to just hang on here to what Jesus says for a few minutes. Because in his statement to the religious leaders, Jesus is referring back to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 28, where Ezekiel is in the middle of describing the fall of the king of Tyre, a neighboring nation. And this king had become so arrogant that he began to think he was God. And so Ezekiel is pronouncing God's judgment upon him and that God is going to cast him down from his throne. But as you read that chapter, it becomes clear that Ezekiel begins to describe the fall of some other great being far beyond this earthly king because of the terminology that he uses. Let me read some of that from Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel describing the fall of Satan. Here here it is. You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You, dropping down to verse 14, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, the highest of angels, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth, the downfall of Satan. Revelation chapter 12 tells us a little bit more about this. It says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his archangels fought against Satan, the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. So, we moderns, we may have a problem with the existence of Satan, because he's invisible. We can't see him. But, you know, if we use that same logic, we would also have a problem believing that God exists because God's invisible too. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're searching for meaning and purpose in your life, and there might even be someone here today, maybe more than one, who has really questioned or even given up believing that there really is a God that exists. How could there be a God who exists in a world where evil is is part of the brew like it is. How could it possibly be? But Jesus is answering that question for us today. He's telling us that God created other beings beside himself, and he gave those other beings the opportunity to choose 
to make a difference. Why did he do that? Knowing that some beings might choose to do evil. Why would God go ahead and create? Because God knew also that there would be many, many people who would choose him and would choose to do the right. And God wants to share his goodness and spread his grace and loving goodness all throughout the universe. If God, God had chosen not to create because of the possibility that some people would misuse that gift of choice, if that would have been his reason for not creating, then what that means is God, allowed, God was held hostage by the possibility of evil. And evil, evil is secondary to good. God, God wanted to create good and spread good throughout the universe. I like what C.S. Lewis, professor of literature in Oxford, Cambridge, this is what he said about the existence of Satan. He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. And then he ends with this line, but the devils themselves, they are equally pleased by either error. I think there's a lot of insight in that statement. So our purpose in these seven weeks is certainly to state that Satan really does exist. He's not a myth, not a myth. He's a dangerous one. But our purpose is also not to get overly fascinated with him and caught up into, this, into his existence to the point where people are having nightmares. That's not our desire. That's not, we're going to try to be in balance here. But the point we're trying to make is that, Je- that Jesus teaches us that there is a being called Satan and he stands behind the darkness and the evil and the destruction and the pain and the sorrow of this world and any and every sorrow that has ever touched your life. Satan stands behind it and is some way, some way tied into that. Now Genesis chapter 3 tells us how evil spread to humanity when Satan presented the same tempting offer to Adam and Eve that caused him to fall. Satan wanted to be God. He thought he could be, or at least he could be equal to God. What did he say when he came to Adam and Eve? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, he says this, you can be like God. Now, that's a power trip right there. Being your own master, being in charge of your own life, that's pretty intoxicating. And our parents took the bait And the same poison in Satan's heart passed into human nature, to the whole human family tree, into your heart and mine. And that's how Satan has his kingdom of darkness. And Jesus called him, didn't he, the prince of the world. And he still is the prince of this world. And the evidence of that is present more than ever before. Satan's character is exactly the same as it's always been. His strategy to destroy you and your loved ones and this world with us is no less today than when he first persuaded our parents to turn away from God to a path of destruction. And the scriptures give us a clear profile of Satan. We can take a look at all of the names that Satan is given in the scripture. And those names reveal pretty much what he's up to. Here's just a quick list, and we're not, I don't have time. There's a sermon in every one of those, but we don't have time. Let me run down the quick list. Here are Satan's names. The, word, the name Satan means adversary. 
It means he loves to stir up conflict. His name, devil, means slanderer. He is a pathological liar. Lucifer, shining one. He is an angel of light. Satan likes to take evil and make it look like truth. He is the tempter. He is the seducer. He is the ruler of the world, which means he has global influence. He is the prince of darkness, which means that he is the chief prince over an entire army and hierarchy of evil spirits, fallen angels called demons. He is the accuser. He loves this one. The word means shamer or condemner. And one of Satan's favorite tactics is to fill a a human being's life with shame. And the earlier on in life Satan can put a shame filter inside of a person, the better for him. And all the demons of hell high-five each other every time they can introduce shame into the life of a child. And we know that abuse, and that's what it does. He is also called the father of lies. That means he is the deceiver. The scriptures also give us a clear picture of how specifically he has targeted humanity, nations, cultures, and you. Here's some of those things. Not all, but here's some. Satan's specific strategic targets. He's targeting your faith, your identity. He wants to confuse you about your identity, your family, your confidence, your calling, your purity, your peace, your heart, your relationships. And the scriptures tell us that the avenue that's of Satan's influence in our lives is through, the, is through suggestion. He suggests thoughts, ideas, images to the human mind. A couple passages of scripture. John chapter 8 verse 44 says, You belong to your father the devil, that is to the slanderer. And you want to carry out your father's desire, Jesus said to the religious leaders. He was a murderer from the beginning. He didn't hold to the truth. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. In other words, Jesus is making it pretty clear there that Satan is a pathological liar. There's no truth in him. He's out to spread deceit. 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul says this. The spirit says clearly in later times, some people will even abandon the faith. Why? Following deceiving spirits and things that are being taught by demons, ideas and thoughts that are being planted in their hearts, in their minds, by demons. Now, here's something that uh, we really need to realize. Uh, There are four sources of ideas or thoughts that come onto the radar of our minds. There's four sources. There's God. When we read the Bible, we're getting God's thoughts. The Holy Spirit can speak to us. God can put thoughts in our hearts. We think up our own thoughts. I mean, we have self-talk and we talk to ourselves. We think within ourselves. Other people certainly pass ideas and and, uh, thoughts and things like that. uh, We get get it from others. But we usually stop at three. But there is one other, and Jesus is clearly pointing it out to us. Satan is... Demonic powers, they also suggest thoughts and ideas. In fact, that's the realm where they specialize. 
And it can be hard to sort out the evil thoughts we ourselves are very capable of coming up with from thoughts that might be being suggested to us by the enemy. Uh, When Satan brings a thought to you and I, he's appealing to our fallen nature. uh, That poison that came into Adam and Eve that flowed down through the human tree gives us all an inclination, a bent toward doing the wrong thing, a bent toward sin. Satan knows that. And so he appeals to that inside of us to try to draw us off the path. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, Let me say it this way first. Whether the thought comes from our own hearts or whether the thought is something from the outside that Satan is bringing to us through him, a direct encounter with, an, with a demonic spirit or with, through somebody else. Satan is always involved in it in some way. If he isn't the or- originator, he's certainly there to incite and develop the idea. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about a pornographic thought that pops into a person's mind. Where did that come from? Did that come from Satan? Or did that come from our own human heart? You know, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says this about our human hearts. It says that the human heart is deceitful above all things. That's quite a statement. And he goes on, and the human heart is desperately wicked. In other words, there's a cape, uh, with, mixed in with the good and the good aspirations inside of us all. There is a streak in human nature that if you push the right buttons can get really, really, really dark. And I think we know that. And I think if we're honest, we will understand that that's an assessment of your life and mine, my heart and your heart too. In fact, the moment any of us ever begin to lose sight of the capability that we ourselves have for evil, then we are setting ourselves up. (laughs) We become a great target for Self-righteousness is a great target for the enemy. It really is. So let's, let's com- think about a pornographic thought. Where did that come from? Well, if you're sitting in your office and you're just going about your, your work and all of a sudden just flashing into your mind is a pornographic idea or some other horrible idea, there's a likelihood, there's a poss- strong possibility that Satan is suggesting something to you. He's putting that, planting an idea in your mind. He wants you to act upon it. However, uh, the Bible says if you resist the devil, he will flee. So we have to take a stand against that. But if you're at your computer, and while you're there, an image pops up on the computer, a pornographic image, then the instant of that temptation could very well start with the the fallenness that is in your own heart. So either way, the enemy is always there to take that to the next step, whatever the origin might be. The The goal Satan has in his influence is always to gain control of our lives. 1 John chapter 5 verse 19 says this, We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control 
of the evil one. That's what Satan wants. John chapter 10, verse 10 says the thief, and here Jesus is referring to Satan, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And there's sort of a progression right there. Satan comes into our lives to begin robbing us. But he has an intention. He wants to lead us to death, and he wants to lead us to to our destruction. But Jesus ends that statement by saying this, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this to Simon Peter. And this is uh, right uh, during, uh, just after the Last Supper, uh, which we're going to share in just a few moments. After that first communion meal, this is what Jesus said to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You know, in the ancient world, whenever they sifted wheat, uh, it was the last part of a three-phase part of threshing grain. The first thing they'd do with grain was they beat it so that the pieces of grain would fall out. Then they grind it into, into smaller particles and powder. But then the last step is running it through a sieve. And the way they did it, they had a sieve was maybe two or three feet in diameter, sort of a shallow bowl kind of thing, and they'd pour the grain in there. And then, uh, back then it was the ladies' job mostly to do the sifting of the grain. So they would take this thing and they would just shake that grain, shake it violently, so that the, sh- the chaff, the, the, the bad parts, the weeds that were in there, any pebbles that were in there, would all bounce to the top. And when Jesus says that, that's what he's talking about. Satan, he's saying, Peter, Satan wants to take you And he wants to shake you violently. He wants you to fall apart. He wants to disintegrate you. And and Jesus could say the same thing about Satan's intention for you. He wants to disintegrate your life. He wants to violently shake you. So how do we stand up to Satan? Can we stand up to him? Because after all, the Apostle Paul himself tells us that Satan is a spiritual being. Satan is located in the spiritual realm. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 12 say it this way. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand against what? Against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The word, the phrase heavenly places is just another way of saying in the spiritual realm, the unseen world that's around us. And Satan heads up this army of demonic power in the unseen world. So can we stand up to him? Well, yeah, Paul just said it, and we're going to look at it some more. Uh, We can successfully stand against Satan by realizing at least these three things. Number one, Satan at the cross was completely defeated by Jesus Christ. 
He was completely defeated there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says this, and you have to get the picture in your mind, that when Jesus hung on the cross, every demon of hell, including Satan himself, came like a blitzkrieg, like a, a charge against Jesus when he hung upon that cross. And now imagine that. Every, every demonic ingenuity for evil, every ounce of shame, everything, everything in Satan's arsenal, he threw that, he blasted the way at Jesus on the cross to destroy him. But this is what the scripture says. Colossians 2.15, that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers and those authorities, the principalities and powers. He disarmed them, triumphing over them by the cross. He sent them running. Now, Here's the second thing is we need to realize our spiritual location in Christ. Yes, Satan, he is a powerful being. He's a, he's a fallen angelic being. He's in the spiritual realm, and we're just mortal. We're physical. But listen to what Ephesians says about those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and what happens about our location in him. It says this, and I'm going to sort of paraphrase a little bit here. Because of God's great love for us, even when we were spiritually dead in our sins, when we placed our faith in Jesus, God made us alive and he raised us up and seated us where? With Christ in heaven. So the point here is this. While you and I live physically on the earth in these physical bodies that have all kinds of limitations and weaknesses, when you, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then spiritually, by your faith in Jesus, you are also located right where he is this very moment. Seated with him on his throne at the Father's right hand in heaven, which means that the authority with which he defeated all the power of the enemy, every demon of hell that came against him, that same authority belongs to you because you're seated with Christ in the spiritual realm. You know what the book of Romans says? I, forget, I, should, have made number, I should have put four things in this list. Okay, I'm going to toss this in. There's no extra cost, okay. Uh, but here it is. Uh, Romans chapter 6 says that one of the most important things a Christian can do every day is, and the old, the old word is reckon. It means calculate. Reckon, calculate who you are over and over and over again. Because you know what? We have short memories. And so sometimes we can get under some sort of an attack or in a discouragement or under a temptation or some sort of pressure. And we can we can feel very, very overwhelmed and weak and like we're being drawn and destroyed by it. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that faith is, living a life of faith is that we are constantly reminding ourselves of what Paul just says about our identity. 
and who we are. And you know what? Who you are this morning? And you know who I am this morning? You are a person right now, not just seated on pews at Calvary, not pews, but chairs at Calvary Church. You're not just seated here. Your body is. I can see you, okay? Your bodies are here. But you're seated somewhere else today, too, spiritually speaking. You, and where is that? It's the best seat in the house. It's the best seat in the universe. You're seated at the Father's right hand in Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realms. That gives you authority every day of your life to deal with the powers of darkness, not in your own strength, but drawing upon the strength in whom your salvation lies, Jesus Christ. Now listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He says the same thing again. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we human, we're living right now in our human bodies, flesh and blood and bone, and we have all kinds of limitations, and we have all kinds of vulnerabilities in these bodies. But he goes on. He says, But we are not waging this war against Satan, against the powers of evil and darkness. We're not waging that war according to the flesh. We're not waging that war with frail human, an attempt to use human resources to do that. He goes on and says, no, we have divine power. What's divine? That's deity. That's the power of God. We have the power of God to destroy strongholds. What are strongholds? Well, we don't have a lot of time to talk about that, but a stronghold basically is a fortress or it's a bondage. It's an, a dug, it's, it's when Satan digs into a person's life and sets up a trench, a, a fortress. It can, be, it, can be, it can be a number of different things. Any, anything that holds you in bondage to something that's destructive. But we have power in Christ to see those fortresses. And Paul, in the next verse, he uses the word demolished. That's a powerful word, to demolish something. And then the fourth thing I want to say is this. Paul says in this Ephesians 6 passage that we are to put on the spiritual armor. Now, we're going to deal with that, with each piece of that armor beginning September 11th. Um, But let me read this passage for you today. In verse number 13, it says this. Well, let me read the whole thing. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take a stand. That's where you declare, I'm a child of God. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against, as we read, flesh, blood, but it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Paul goes on. Therefore, he says it again, put on. The full armor of God. Think about that. Whose armor is it he's asking you to put on? Put on God's armor. The same armor that God wears. You can, you can get dressed in that too. So that when the day of evil comes, you can expect days of evil to come. There's no one here that's going to escape confrontations with evil things. So, but, but we can do something about the evil day that, that will come so that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. You know what? Paul, in one or two verses, uses the word 
take your stand about four times right there. I think he's saying something to us. Take your stand. And then he says this. Again, verse 14. Stand firm then. with And then here's different pieces of armor. With the belt of truth around your waist, covering your core. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And whenever I read that passage, I think of those ancient warfare where, you know, you'd have all your archers and they would shoot thousands of arrows into the sky, block the sun, there were so many arrows. And then those things come down seeking a target. That's what Paul's saying. Satan's, that's what Satan does toward you. And you can expect in your life, every now and then, a volley of flaming arrows shot your direction by the enemy. Temptations, discouragement, disillusionment, whatever you want to call it. Maybe something that strikes a loved one's life. But Paul is saying, lift up the shield of faith. Now, we have two options when we have two options when evil strikes. And we all know this from personal experience. We have one option is just to let Satan shake us, like I said a moment ago, shake us and just dissolve us. And we crumble up in a <laughs> puddle on the floor. That's one option. The other option is we take the shield of faith, stand our ground, and hold it up against, in, in, hold it up against the power of the enemy. It takes a lot of courage to do that. It's not easy to do that. But it's the, it's the thing that God wants us to do. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. I want to wrap it up just by a couple questions. Number one, what is the spiritual struggle in your life right now? Is it a temptation, a test, a trial? What is it? I'm going to ask, I want to encourage you to take what we've talked about in this, in this message this morning, take it into your heart throughout this week, read the scriptures, pray over the scriptures, take your stand against the evil one. Now, let me ask this question. Is there any known sin that you are allowing in your life right now? And has it gone beyond being just a temptation to something that really has taken a measure of control in your life, and you've tried to break it, but you find you just don't, you can't do it. You can't be free of it. Well, I want to encourage you this morning to take, to take what we're saying here today, to pour over these scriptures, to pray over these scriptures, and then to reach out to someone else or some others else that you trust so that you can tell them what's going on in your life. You know, there's something about when we have a secret thing going on in our life and we're trying our best to hide it and cover it because, well, we want to protect our image and all of us do. All of us want to protect our image. We all do. But you know what? If we have a, if we have a sin going on in our life that really has a grip on us, you know what the Lord says in his word for us to do? Confess your faults one to another. 
so that you can be healed. Now, that doesn't mean that you stand up in front of a thousand people and just begin to, you know. What that means is you seek out a couple trusted people that are on the same journey in faith that you are. And you ask, you, you share with them what's going on. You know, if there's something about getting the secrecy drained away from something, that, that's half the battle right there. So we grow in community with one another and by the power of God's word working in all of our hearts. I want to encourage that. A- action steps. Oh, by the way, all the list of scriptures we looked at today, and there's a lot of them there, I know. I have copies of that on the information desk if you want to take it this week so you can just refer to them and meditate on them yourself and pray over them. So meditate and journal on on these scriptures this week. And then surrender your entire self to the Lord and remember who you are in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a way out, a way to deal with the evil that is on this planet. You've given us a definitive answer, Lord. It's far more than just leftover remnant of animal impulse and animal aggression. Lord, it's, it's, it was rooted in a choice that poisoned the whole family tree. And now, Lord, we want to be free of that poison, and you've opened up the door. You defeated the power of the enemy at the cross. We're going to celebrate that now as we come to communion. Lord, thank you for what you did on the cross to defeat the power of sin in our lives, to break the bondages. You defeated the enemy. Lord, as we come in a moment to celebrate this, we pray, Father, that you will touch our hearts, speak to our hearts powerfully, deeply. And Lord, we give you praise. We give you thanks for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.